So this past week, I, uh, well, this happens a lot, but I, I happened to watch some documentaries. I, I watch a lot of documentaries, but I happened to watch documentaries that all dealt with the uh, modern issue of extreme luxurious living uh, by, by Western culture. And one of the documentaries pointed out something that I, I've heard quite a bit, but uh, the way they said it I thought was really well done. They said that as they look at the United States and some of the Western European countries, they're all going the way of Rome. The way that the Roman Empire fell is very similar to the way that the United States is going. And they said that there are certain signs that you can look for and certain things that happen with the Roman Empire that you see happening in the United States. And one of those is just this incredible amount, massing debt, and, and with that, then this incredible, luxurious, lavish living. Uh, one person said something akin to, uh, I want to drive fast, eat well, and leave a pretty corpse when I'm done. That's, that seems to be the feeling of people, and that seems to be the way the culture is going. So it's not just an American issue, and I don't even think this is a modern issue. I think this has happened throughout the history of mankind, this, this, this decadence. We've seen numerous times in the scriptures of people that say, let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now, my, my concern isn't so much with the culture, though it is concerning to me to watch the culture that I live in go on this epic downgrade, right? They're going down a, a hill with no brakes. And, and that, that concerns me because that's my culture. Concerns me for the future of my children. It concerns me as a parent thinking I have to raise kids with these particular values being taught to them. And so I'm, I'm thinking, how do I combat these things? But I raise this issue because it's inevitable that this cultural phenomenon that we're seeing will come inside of the church. And, and normally this idea of luxurious living and, and, and amassing a lot of this wealth, normally when you, when you talk to these people or you listen to them talk, they talk about their self-love. I'm doing this because I enjoy this. I do this because I, I, I care about myself and I care about the future of my family, so on. This morning, I want to challenge that notion that caring for yourself and loving yourself is really amassing a lot of wealth. Really, if you care for your soul, or if you care for yourself, you care for your soul. I'll put it that way. Your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrates how much you really care about yourself, care about your future, care about your family. And I think this text that we're going to look at this morning really cuts at the heart of our culture and really points to the, to, to the issues that we find in our culture. The issue is not that these people don't love themselves. In fact, what, what you find is that the culture around us and the culture that's starting to come inside of the church is a, a culture of self-hatred, that truly to love oneself, one gets wisdom, one gets discernment. And so in Proverbs 19, verses 8 through 16 this morning, I want to look at what does it look like to care for your own soul? What, is, what are some of the marks of that? And we're going to look at wise people who do care for their soul, and we're going to just notice them. We're going to notice what they think about. We're going to notice what they do. And I think there's going to be three things that you're going to notice. So in Proverbs 19, verses 8 through 10, 
I think one thing that you're going to see is, is that a person that takes care of their soul or has self-love is one who gets and practices discernment. If you get discernment and wisdom, you love yourself. Right? We'll talk about that. Then in verses 11 through 15, we're going to see that if you really care about your soul, you really care about yourself and your, your future, you're going to have self-control. Right? So there's going to be the self-love through discernment. There's also going to be the self-control. And then in verse 16, we're going to see that the wise people who really care for, them, for their soul, they are very careful in being obedient to God's word, to God's will. That's, that's really what it looks like for self-preservation. That, that's what it looks like to take care of your soul. So let, let's look at this. Let's first look at verse 8. And we're going to look at the wise And we're going to look at the care that they have for their own soul. And we're going to see their self-love. Now notice what Solomon says here in verse 8. He says, whoever gets sense loves his own soul. And he who keeps understanding will discover good. Literally, this first phrase in in verse 8, when it says, whoever gets sense, could, could be literally translated, whoever gets a heart. And so you might wonder, how is it that the word heart here gets translated as sense or as wisdom? It's, it's a really interesting phrase, by the way, he who gets a heart. Because when we think of the heart, at least in a Jewish mind, it's the, the central part of who you are. It's the deepest part of who you are. When it's used by itself, it, it, it refers to all of the immaterial part of who you are on the inside. When it's used in, in conjunction with other other parts of the immaterial body. So, for example, here it says, he who gets a heart loves his soul. There seems to be this emphasis on what, what you, your goals and how you achieve those goals, how you think about those goals. It's about how you plan those things out. It talks about value system. It talks about how you think. So, so when, you, when you say, he who gets a heart, ultimately what Solomon is saying is, deep down, there's this deep down value system. And when you get the right kind of values and and you get the right kind of vision on on how to accomplish those values right so so that's why he uses the word sense here it's a really complicated way of translating it but that's how they get there and i think that's a good idea it's the idea of that i have values that match god's values and i have discernment and wisdom on how to live those things out in the real world. So he who gets a heart, he who has discernment, he who gets discernment, that is really the idea. By the way, we spent quite a bit of time in the earlier part of the book discussing how to get discernment, right? It's an, spending time in prayer, asking God, God, I, I don't know. I need your help. I'm a child. I need you to teach me. I don't know anything. I'm not, I'm not coming with any grand thing that I offer you. You need to teach me, lead me, guide me. Spending time in God's word, looking at God's word, not, not just a verse a day. This, this is serious contemplation of God's word, serious thinking about God's word. Uh, what, what does it really mean? What, what is it really saying? A contemplation of how do I live this out? There would be the implication because we're believers of this idea that a person is a believer. You really can't get discernment apart from being born again and having the indwelling Holy Spirit. And as the author of Hebrews says, this is something that is honed, right? 
So uh, as we mature in Christ, our sense of discernment is being honed, right? It's uh, as we practice, right, we get better. And as we get practice obeying God, we get better at it. We we learn how to be more obedient and the, the right way to be obedient, to be obedient in a way that's attractive to others and not, and not bullish, but, but this idea of winsome and that we say the right thing at the right time in the right attitude. And as we get older, we learn how to do that, and, and, and it increases and it grows. That's the sense. So the one who gets discernment, right, the one who gets a heart, notice, notice the description, loves his own soul. The opposite would be true as well, right? He who does not get discernment would do what? Hate his own soul. We're gonna, we're gonna, Solomon's going to give us a couple examples of what that looks like of people who lack discernment, who are foolish, and how there's this self-inflicting pain that they put on themselves, this reckless behavior that leads them to destruction. But notice that a person who gets discernment loves his own soul. He, he, he loves himself. This isn't a narcissistic thing, by the way. This isn't somebody who's infatuated with themselves to the point that there's no one else in the room but just me and myself. There might be the third guy, but he's weird, right? It's just me and myself, right? That's not what's being talked about here. What's being talked about here is I'm concerned about my well-being, I want to live in a way that's healthy. I want to live in a way that is successful. It's not, it's all about me. It's how do I navigate the world so that it's successful? How do I live in this world that I'm pleasing to the Lord? That's the concern. The the, the idea is I see God's word. I realize the state of my soul and I realize it's not where it's supposed to be and I want to get right with the Lord. That's the idea. It's it's this idea of self-preservation. It's this idea that I realize things are not Right. It's like going to the doctor and realizing that you have a disease. And it's, okay, what do I need to do to fix that? That's the sense. You wouldn't say that somebody who has a disease and then goes to the doctor is narcissistic. They could be, but that doesn't mean that. It just means they want to take care of themselves. That's the sense here. We must also remember, this, is not just, this isn't just because somebody says, oh, I want to go to heaven, that that means that then they care about their souls. Notice that Solomon's saying it's more than that. It's somebody who gets discernment. There's this thought process much more than I just want the blessings of God. It's this idea of I want to be pleasing to God. That's the sense, okay? So this person loves themselves. Those people who have extravagant things and live in luxury, that's not necessarily loving yourself. As we're going to see later, that's going to, that's going to lead to your own ruin. And then notice what he says next. He says, he who keeps understanding, so understanding and sense are, are similar here in the sense that they deal with wisdom. I, I know what God wants. I, I see a path and how to plan a path to live in the way that God wants me to live. But notice what this person's doing. He who keeps understanding will discover good. This word for keep is the word for guard. It's the sense of protecting. It's the sense of watching. So on the one hand, this person loves themselves. On this other hand, they go, okay, this is important for me to have discernment, and I guard it. This is an important thing for me to guard. It's an important thing for me to watch and develop and make sure that nothing compromises my discernment. So he who keeps understanding knows what will happen. He will discover good. 
He'll discover that which is good because he's doing what God wants, right? That's good. It's good because it's beneficial for the person. When you have just godly discernment, it, it's always the best case scenario, right? This is, this is the good, and, and, and this is satisfying to my soul. It, it might not necessarily turn out to be uh, pleasant, but it's good. I, I think of our brothers and sisters right now that we've been praying for, that group of young believers who are living in the jungle, told that if you just recant Jesus, you can come back and live in your house. But until you do that, you can't come back into the village. It's good that they are staying true to Jesus. That's the right thing. That's the thing that discernment would call for. doesn't mean it's the most comfortable. In fact, it's incredibly uncomfortable. But it's good. And the good thing is the right thing. It's not necessarily the most comfortable thing. Discernment teaches you that. That's a, that's a thing of discernment. I'm going to do what's right because that's what's good. It's what's beneficial. It's what gets me closer to the Lord. That's what you'll discover. If you keep discernment and, and you don't let other voices come in and tell you, well, this is what you should do or this is what you should do or, or other values that are not scriptural values come in and inform your mind and then you might plan a different course. No, no, we, we, we go to God's word. We look at the whole counsel of God's word. We want to honor and glorify Jesus. And if I protect that, I protect that discernment, I'll discover good. Now, there are people that don't do this. There's fools that live by the flesh. And, and Solomon will give a couple examples here of what does it look like when you don't have discernment. Notice, notice verses 9 and 10. So first, a false witness will not go unpunished. So, so immediately, you know that, that the person who's a false witness is somebody who's perjured themselves in a court of law. They're willing to lie. That is a foolish thing to do. And notice the consequence. They will be punished. You will go into ruin. If you care about yourself, you're not going to put yourself in a situation that's going to cause ruin. That's the logic. So lying puts you in that position of ruin. You're not, you're not helping yourself. You're hurting yourself. You're not loving yourself. You're hating yourself. You're putting yourself on a path of destruction. And then notice what it says. It says, he who breathes out lies will perish. When will they perish? They might perish immediately. People might figure out that they're a liar and not trust them. And there are some consequences to that in society, right? If you're found to be a liar. If this person is a fool and a fool constantly gives out lies and this fool does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, it is possible that this is an, this is an indicative of his fleshliness that he's not in Christ, and this parish might be uh, eternal destruction. For us as believers, we should not be known as liars. We must be very careful to tell the truth. This is something, this is something that, is, that, that God does. God tells the truth, and we are to be like God. We are to be truthful. Paul tells us numerous times in the New Testament not to go on lying to one another. Now notice this next one. This next one is kind of a difficult one. It says, it is not fitting for a fool to live in luxury. That's not the difficult part. It's the next verse, or the next part of the verse. Much less for a slave to rule over princes. Now, we've got to always remember in the book of Proverbs, Solomon is not, just, is not giving observations of society. There's a lot of people who think that's what Solomon's doing here. He's just observing society. 
This is what you do in polite society. This is, how you, this, is, this is the polite thing to do. That's not what Solomon's concerned about, right? Solomon is concerned about us having the fear of the Lord. The undercurrent of this verse is the fear of the Lord. And remember, when, when, when that's the undercurrent, then the question you ask is, is this person following in the fear of the Lord? Or is this person acting like a fool? And in verse 10, it is clear that Solomon is casting this in a bad light, meaning that it is foolishness. So whatever we think about this verse, verse 10, we understand that it deals with foolishness. Also remember, number two, the immediate context right above this is what? The idea of discernment, having understanding, doing things according to the way that God says for us to do them, And it's on this basis of lack of discernment that he says, look, here are two instances of lack of discernment. When you have a foolish rich kid who gets a house and lives in luxury, and then you have a foolish slave who gets power. That's the sense. So let's think of this first one. It is not fitting. It's not polite. It's not fitting or it's not good. That's what the word here fitting means. It's appropriate, polite. It's something that is is supposed to happen. And so when we say it's not fitting, it's not fitting according to what standard? Not society, but according to the fear of the Lord. It's not a good thing for what? For a foolish person, a person who lives by the flesh and rejects the Lord, it is not good for them to live in luxury. The question is, why is it bad for a fool to live in luxury? Friends, we do not have enough time for us to describe why it is bad to give fools a whole bunch of money. We all immediately know the devastating effect that this could have not only on a person, but other people around them when a fool gets to live in luxury. Especially one who does not have discernment. Especially one who every decision is one from the flesh. It's bad. It's bad. But then he says, much less for a slave to rule over princes. Once again, this is not a comment on the way things are supposed to be in a royal court. We find in the Bible times where there are slaves who are given positions of ruling by God. Think of Joseph. Joseph was a slave and he was elevated to rule over princes. So clearly... It's not an idea that a slave isn't smart enough to rule or that it's always a bad thing when a slave gets to power. The issue is how the slave gets to power and what he does with that power when he gets there. And the implication is this is a foolish slave. So if it's bad for a fool to get a lot of money, imagine a person who has been exploited, a person who has been marginalized, a person who has been abused, gets to power over people who have exploited him. Now imagine that person is a fool. That is not good either. That is a recipe for the destruction of everything you hold dear, right? Not because he's a slave, but because he's foolish. That's the sense. Lack of discernment. Lack of discernment. It destroys things. When you have a lack of discernment, it destroys things. It destroys yourself, and it destroys the community. That's what he's getting at. It's better to get discernment, 
Because that shows that you love yourself. Just because you have money and just because you have power doesn't mean anything. It's about discernment. You could have all the money in the world and you could think, I'm loving myself because I have the luxury. That's not what it means. When you get discernment and spend time in God's word, that means that you're caring for your soul. That's the good. Now, there's another thing. Notice the next thing in verse 11. Notice how these people exercise self-discipline. And, and we'll see how this, how this is for your own benefit. And, and, and when you exercise self-discipline or self-control, wh- why this means that you love yourself. Notice it says, good sense makes one slow to anger. Now, this word for sense is different than the word that is used up in verse 8. But it, it's a synonym. And it carries the same idea as sense and understanding of wisdom, of knowing, of, of, of knowing God's law, being able to say, okay, this is what God's law says. This is how I practically navigate through life, pleasing God, saying the right things in the right way at the right time, doing the right things at the right time in the right way, having the right attitude, right? I'm, I'm being obedient and I'm skillful in how I navigate through life. That's the idea of sense here. So good sense, having sense, having wisdom, has discernment. Notice what it does. It makes one slow to anger. <laughs> Once again, the idea here, slow to anger, means... Literally, if you, if you are discerning, you have a big nose. That's the phrase. You have a big nose, right? Remember, we, we've talked about this phrase, big nose, in the book of Proverbs. It's not an insult. It's the idea that it's a long time before your nostrils flare in anger. I know all of you think Sophia is very sweet, and she is very sweet. But we told her no this past week. And we saw her short nose. We saw her nostrils flare. It's adorable. Don't get me wrong. But that's the idea. When you get angry, your nostrils flare. The idea of having a long nose is that it's a long time before your nostrils flare. Right? That's the idea. So one who has discernment means that you have patience. And by consequence, notice what happens, and it is his glory, meaning it's a good thing to overlook an offense. There's a connection here, friends, to having discernment, being patient with people, and being forgiving. Right? There's a logical line that follows those. As believers, we are to have self-control. That's part of the fruit of the Spirit. When we're walking by the Spirit, we have self-control. When we have self-control, we are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger because the word teaches us and what the Spirit's doing in our heart and as we observe Christ, we realize that our anger does not achieve the righteousness of God. It doesn't do anything for God's name. It doesn't do anything to further the, uh, the gospel. It doesn't do anything to further the testimony or point anyone to Christ. When I get angry and I lash out in sin, no one listens to that and goes, well, now I need to follow Jesus. In fact, it's always the opposite case. So if, I, if I'm walking by the Spirit, I'm patient. And as I'm patient, guess what comes with patience? Forgiveness. This is, this is one of the great marks of Christianity. 
forgiving. The people are forgiving. In fact, go with me just quickly. There's a lot we could go to. We could go to Matthew 18. We could go to Romans 12. Go to Colossians 3. We could even go to Hebrews 12. But there's one that I want to point out is Ephesians 4. Go with me to Ephesians 4 quickly. Ephesians 4. And just notice verse 32. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Well, how should we forgive each other? As God in Christ forgave you. That draws me back to the gospel, and I think, well, how did God forgive me? Well, I was a sinner, re- rebellious sinner. I didn't want to submit to God. I didn't want any reconciliation, but he wanted reconciliation with me. So what did he do? He sent his son to come and die on the cross for my sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. Then he, spent his, then he sent his spirit to work on my heart, causing me to see the truth. And then there was a time where I realized I was in the wrong. And here he was pulling me to himself this whole time. I, I asked for forgiveness. I, I placed my faith in Christ. Then as a believer, what happens? I still sin. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I continue to sin in the same ways that I, sin, that I sinned before I was a believer, and I commit the same sins over and over and over again in the same day. And guess what? He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That is how he forgives us. So when it tells us to forgive one another as Christ has, as God has forgiven us, in Christ, that means our forgiveness must match that forgiveness that we find in Christ. That's a tall order, right? That's a tall order. And the only way that can happen is if you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. This is one of those marks of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So going back to Proverbs, so so this is what a wise person does, has the self-control. This is a good thing. Now we're going to see examples of when it's good, when this happens and how it's good, and when somebody does the opposite of this and it's bad. So first, he points out government. Notice in verse 12, he says, A king's wrath is like a growling of a lion. So imagine a king who has absolute power, who has a short temper. That image of a growling lion that is untamable power. That's, on, that's, that's untamable passion and doom. I, I've never had a, a lion growl at me, but I imagine if I ever hear a lion growling at me and looking at me and getting ready to charge at me, I would have a full appreciation of a king's anger towards me that there is really nothing I can do to stop what's about ready to happen. Maybe got one bullet. That's what I got. And even then, that might not even work, right? This is a hopeless situation. So when a king has wrath, it's like a lion. It devours, it destroys. No one can stop it. But his favor is like dew on the grass. Think about it. A a king who is gracious and forgiving, that brings life, right? Think about a king or a ruler who has a short temper that destroys things. Now, I I will add this one caveat. When I thought of this verse, I also thought of a positive of this verse. I don't think this is what Solomon thinks of, but 
I'm going to take a rabbit trail and talk about Jesus for a moment. When Jesus comes as a king, he is going to do both of these perfectly. Human kings do not do this perfectly, and human kings and human rulers and human governors are terrible at this. But when Jesus comes, he will be perfect, and you imagine his wrath will be like a lion, but it will be righteous. It will be good. When he comes, his favor will be good and life-giving. I don't think that's what Solomon's talking about here. But I did want to take a moment just to talk about Jesus for a second. Now, notice verse, the next verse, verse 13. Because remember, we're talking about self-control. We're talking about uh, 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 this idea of, of being patient, this idea of forgiveness. N- notice verse 13. A foolish son is a ruin to his father. Context, right, has a lack of discernment, has a lack of self-control, not forgiving. And notice that a child is ruin to his parent, and here the son to his father. This is true. I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody who had a parent or had a child that was wayward. And they would come and talk to you, fighting back those tears of a rebellious kid. There's nothing you can do to stop it. It's out. And there's sin. And you wish there wasn't sin, but there is. It destroys the parents. You can hear it in their voice. You can hear it when they talk about their kid. There's like this broken note. There's always this sense of sadness. Even when they're talking about things that are good and fine and, and when things were good, there's always that, that broken sadness in their voice. It destroys parents when children are foolish. This is the downfall, right? This is the downfall to a lack of self-control. This is downfall to families that don't, or, or children that don't forgive, right? It's a ruin to, to the father, Notice the next one. A wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of water. Now, this is interesting. Because the sense is, here's here's a woman that is married to a man that is quick-tempered and does not forgive and is willing to fight her husband about every time that she thinks the husband is wrong. And remember, she's unforgiving and quick-tempered. Bad situation. And then some commentators, when they say, okay, it's a continual dripping of water, there's a little bit of a debate here. Some people say, okay, is it a dripping of water like when the faucet drips, blop, 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 and you just get super duper annoyed? Or is this talking about a constant rainstorm where things then get swept away? I think dripping here is is, is really light. I I think it's the second. I I think the idea is, is that... That type of behavior of being impatient and unforgiving causes massive destruction inside of the family. This is bad. Now, now notice verse 14. It says, uh, house and wealth are inherited from a father. So if you get a house and you get wealth and it comes from your father, great. That, 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 that's what happens. That, that, that's kind of a normal course of action, Right? But notice what he says, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. You get what, what Solomon is saying. He's contrasting the fool, the foolish wife, the foolish family, the foolish money. He's contrasting that with the gifts from God, from God. And he says, here is a picture of a foolish family, specifically the wife who's short-tempered and, 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 and will not forgive, and how this is 
This is a ruin. But then there's this wise wife, which comes from God, which is a grace from God. And this can only come from God. This is a good thing. This is the good you will discover. The other is a bad. This is a good. And this doesn't come just because the guy is so awesome and so handsome and so strong and so rich that, the late, that all the godly ladies flock to him. No, a wise wife comes from the Lord. She's one who exercises patience and forgiveness, right? She exercises self-control. Now, notice verse 15. He gives another example of a lack of self-control. He says, slothfulness cast into a deep sleep. This could be physically, he's just not working, a person's not working, and so they sleep and everything passes them by. I, I would even go as far as to say this would be something spiritual as well. Spiritual slothfulness causes you to miss a lot of things, right? A, a lack of self-control means that you're slothful not only in your work, but also in your spiritual life. Both are bad. Both are very bad. I would say that the slothfulness in your spiritual life is catastrophic. You can't recover from those types of things. By God's grace, you might, you might be able to, to bounce back, but it, it's very difficult. Lost so much time because of your slothfulness spiritually. And then notice what it says, and it says, and an idle person will suffer hunger. Right? It's true. Somebody who doesn't work isn't going to make money therefore isn't going to go out and be able to buy things, right? That's not what the Lord wants. It's also true spiritually, right? If you don't have self-control and you're not walking by the power of the Spirit, you're not spending time in God's Word, you're not praying, you're not fellowshipping with the Lord, you're not fellowshipping with other believers, you're lazy spiritually, you're going to go around spiritually hungry. Some people are okay with that. You should not be okay with that. We should never be okay with being spiritually hungry. We have an incredible spiritual smorgasbord in God's word, in Christ, that's given to us by the Spirit. There is no reason that any person should ever be hungry spiritually. But that's a lack of self-control. Notice, by the way, all of the ruin that happens when you don't have self-control. That There's a lot of ruin that happens. There's one more. Go with me to verse 16. It says, whoever keeps the commandment keeps his life. He who despises his way will die. So here's this third one, that there's this self-preservation. And notice how a wise person has self-preservation. He keeps God's word. That's what he does. He keeps the commandment. Here I see the phrase, the commandment, referring to God's revealed word. And so... Here's one who is diligent in being obedient to God's word. And notice what happens when you keep God's word, you keep your life. Now, this doesn't mean that life comes from obedience. That's not what it's saying. We realize that we have new life in Christ on the basis of faith. But even Jesus, but even in, in the book of John, it talks about this is the command of God that you believe in the Son. So it makes sense that we would say, okay, you've got to follow that command to believe. It's not on the basis of work. It's still on the basis of faith. 
but you get the sense. If I love myself and I don't want to go into spiritual ruin, I want to be honoring to the Lord, I, I want to have a good satisfying life and I want my family to be healthy and I want to have a good family life, the, the, the thing that Solomon is saying is make sure that you're keeping God's word. That, that is a surefire way of moving in the right direction, right? You won't fall into some of these deadly traps that the fool falls into. And a wise person, this is at their forefront of their mind. What does God's word say? This is the person that values their life and guards their life. Obviously, the fool is the one who despises his way will die. The one who doesn't follow God's will. The one who's living fleshly. That's the self-ruin. This is what it looks like to love yourself, to get discernment. It's what it looks like to love yourself, to have self-control based upon yielding to the power of the Spirit. This is what it looks like to love yourself is to keep God's commandments. This past week, uh, somebody texted me a, a fun game. I'm not going to say who it is uh, just to save his, his identity. Uh, but it was one of those games that was kind of like Deserted Island. I don't know if you ever played Deserted Island. If you're ever on an island and you can only bring one book, what book would it be? You know, it's like a car ride game. Uh, by the way, if you want to figure out who's spiritual, you say you, you can go on an island, you can only bring one book except for the Bible. And if their answer immediately is not the Bible, don't associate with them. I'm joking. But it was, it was a game like that. Deserted island, and, and the, the prompt was this. Here's a list of these pastors and theologians. It, you can only talk to these guys for the rest of your life who are the ones you pick, right? So he showed me the guys he picked, and I showed him the ones that I picked. And It's a fun game. I, I don't know. It really doesn't mean a lot. But when I looked at his list, I thought, okay, that makes sense that he would pick those guys. But there was one guy that he did pick that I thought, that's interesting that he picked him. He picked George Whitfield. I don't know if you know anything about George Whitfield. George Whitfield was, was an evangelist during the time of the Great Awakening. Uh, he was considered the most traveled man in the world at the time. Uh, one of the most popular people. He was a friend of Benjamin Franklin and shared the gospel with Benjamin Franklin a, a lot. And Benjamin Franklin thought it was a badge of honor that he could listen to the great George Whitfield preach and not believe in Jesus Christ. So that tells you about Benjamin Franklin. George Whitfield, regardless of some of his weird things that he said sometimes, was a man who did care about the souls of people. In fact, if you read any of his sermons, that is abundantly clear. He wanted people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He went from village to village, town to town, city to city, preaching the gospel. He has this one sermon, and it's a doozy of a sermon, and it's a doozy of a title. The title is, The Care of the Soul Urged as the One Thing Needed. Or one thing needful. That's a title, right? He was talking about taking care of your soul, and he was looking at the account of Mary and Martha and how Mary sat with, and listened to Jesus because she was concerned about her soul. But Martha was too busy getting lunch together. And Jesus said, Mary chose the better thing. And so he's talking about this, this idea of self-care, of, of caring of the soul. I don't want to read the whole sermon, but there's a couple things that I, I think are, are really good that I want to quote here. He says this, The care of the soul implies a readiness to hear the words of Christ. We seat ourselves at his feet to receive both the law and the gospel from his mouth. It supposes that we learn from this divine teacher the worth of our souls. 
their danger, their remedy, and that we become above all things concerned about its salvation. That's incredible. I think he's right. He then goes on in the sermon and he talks about how people pretend to care for their soul by doing lots of things. They go to church, for example. Nothing wrong with going to church, but that doesn't necessarily mean you care for your soul. And he, and he demonstrates that. He says, being part of societal things, humanitarian deeds, they're good, but that doesn't mean you care for the soul. And he talked about how the only way that you really know that you care about the soul is if you go to God's word and see what God has to say about the soul and then accept his remedy, which is Christ, alone. And then as you're continuing that, you're going back to the word, and that demonstrates the the care for your own soul. But then he says this. He says this. Now, to enlarge on the obvious hints, which must occur, that others may be brought to care about the one thing needful. Basically, he's talking about our care for others and their souls. And he says, if it be needful for you, it is so for your children, for your friends, and your servants. You get it. If you need care for your soul, then your family and your friends need care. But, th- but then he says this. Let them therefore see your concern in this respect for them as well as for yourself. You see what he's saying? He's saying, yes, care for the souls of other people around you. Yes, do that. Openly demonstrate your care for their soul. Great, amen, you need to do that. But don't forget about the care of your own soul. And part of caring for their soul is demonstrating that you care for your own soul. It seems incredibly hypocritical to go to someone and say, I care for your soul, and then you live a life that is contrary for care for your own soul. That's what he's saying. So when we talk about how do I take care of my soul, here we see how we take care of our soul. We get discernment. How do I take care of my soul? I yield to the power of the Spirit and have self-control. That's care for my soul. And I take great pains to take care of my soul and to keep it. How do I take care of my my soul? I fear God and I keep his commandments. That's what it looks like to take care of my soul. I spend time with the Lord in prayer. And it's important that I take care of my soul. It's important that you take care of your own soul. It's important that you you are concerned with your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, let's care about those outside of the church. Yes, let's pray for them. But first, take care of your own soul. First, clean out your own house before you tell others how to clean a house. Take the log out of our own eye, right, as Jesus said, before we attempt to take the speck out of our brother's eye. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I, I thank you for the things that are found in your word. I, I thank you for the encouragement and the challenges that you give us from your word. We ask that we would continue to have grow in our discernment, that we would continue to grow in our knowledge of of your word and of your son and of your grace. We ask, Father, that you would 
impress upon us to care for our own soul and that our own soul would be a top priority in our life and that that would take top priority over many things that we have as priorities right now. We just thank you. We love you for all that you've given us in your son, Jesus. Just help us have a good rest of the day. Bring us back tonight that we may think about your word and honor and glorify you. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen.